Well, I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, the Naked Scientists are bringing you a rough guide to the world of dogs. We're looking at how canine companions can help us to understand Alzheimer's disease, finding out how wolves became dogs not once, but twice, and examining the problems behind pedigrees. Plus, news of why red hair can increase your risk of melanoma, why pain research may be missing a trick, and can we make the Star Trek holodeck a reality? I'm Georgia Mills. I'm Kat Arney, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. A look at this week's news to start with. And up to half of the UK population may be living with chronic pain. But when investigating pain, most of our studies make a rather big omission. If they're in mice, they're all being tested on male mice, which may mean that many females are missing out. This week, researcher Geoffrey Mogul revealed that 78% of studies published in the journal Pain last year only used male mice, and he urged scientists to include female mice in their studies in future. To find out more, Georgia Mills spoke to Dr Ewan Sinjan Smith, who works on pain at the University of Cambridge. Jeff Mogul runs a large research group in, in Canada, and for a long time he's been a proponent of the fact that biomedical scientists have been missing out by focusing most of their research, most of their rodent research, on only using males. And he's got you know, a lot of research suggesting, hey, look, it's very important to consider looking at males and females because there are big differences in the biology and the responses that you can measure to whatever behavioural test you are doing. And his main area of focus has been, been pain. Um, and he's shown you know, it makes a big difference in certain pain models and for certain therapies. If you're using groups of males versus groups of females, you can get different results. And his, his main thing is that researchers should be making a bigger consideration when planning their experiments as to whether they should be using females, males, or a mixture. Um, and if they are only going to be using males, how is that justified and is it justifiable? I mean, there may be a reason, but that's what his main argument is. It's an important factor that lots of people are just ignoring. What proportion of studies are using just male mice? The majority of studies are using just males. If you go back in time, uh, the main reason for this is thought to be that um, female animals obviously have an estrous cycle, you have hormonal fluxes, and therefore that will introduce um, a, a rather difficult-to-control variable into studies. Just to play devil's advocate, what's a small thing like gender when you're using an entirely different species? Again, it depends what your research question is. Um, my group focuses a lot on rheumatoid arthritis. This is a condition that is mainly prevalent in, in females. So one could argue that you know, we don't understand a huge amount about how rheumatoid arthritis is caused. Maybe it would be of benefit to focus studies on rheumatoid arthritis on females or to at least include females and males in studies of a disease that's most common in, in females. You can track the different uh, members of a study through to see if there are any differences between sex. Sometimes there might be, sometimes there won't be. But if you only focus on males, you might miss out on something. And what kind of real-world implications could this, uh, I guess, omission be having? 
Um, well, there's one study um, that, that came out several years ago where there was a certain protein called toll-like receptor 4, um, and the research identified that when you knocked this gene out, so you removed the gene from the animals, they no longer developed neuropathic pain. So that's a sort of pain associated with, with nerve damage. So this looked like this particular protein would be a good target in, in, in understanding more about um, developing analgesics for treating neuropathic pain. But then it turned out that this was only true in males. If you remove the gene in female mice, it didn't make any difference. Um, and that's just a piece of evidence, along with lots of others from different research groups, showing that the biology of how pain is caused at certain levels is different between males and females. Some of the um, stress-induced analgesia that um, is present in males and females has different pathways. So I think there's numerous um, bits of evidence accumulating, suggesting that it's not going to be different at every single point of the pain pathway. But if you don't look, you might miss something. Um, Jeff Mogul himself um, has reanalyzed a lot of data that's published and his general feeling is that you can statistically show that females appear to be more sensitive to um, and less tolerant of pain um, than men. Could it be argued then that a whole host of pain treatments are then engineered for men and may not be effective for women at all? I don't know about ones that are currently in the clinic, but I think the same as if you look at cancer research, scientists are trying to understand more about very specific differences between different sorts of cancers and whether certain subgroups of people would be susceptible to certain treatments and others wouldn't be. So, you know, this idea of personalised medicine, I can certainly imagine a case where, you know, there'll be certain pain medications that may be developed that are far more efficacious in females than men or, or vice versa. But again, if you don't look to see if there are differences there, you're not going to find them and you may end up developing a treatment that looks great in male mice fails in clinical trials because your clinical trial may have involved both males and females. Ewan Sinjin Smith at the University of Cambridge speaking about that piece of research published this week in Nature Perspectives. And next, it is well known that redheads with pale skin and freckles are prone to sun damage. But now, new research from the Sanger Institute in Hinkston has shown how the gene associated with being a redhead not only increases the risk of developing skin cancer, but also makes the tumour grow much faster. What's more, this gene can also be carried with those without red hair, meaning many are unaware they're at greater risk. In fact, it's estimated that 25% of UK adults are carriers of this gene. Redhead Claire Armstrong spoke to Dr David Adams to find out more. What we were interested in this study was exploring the link between variants in a gene called MC1R, and this is the gene that's associated with, uh, with being a redhead, and the effect that this has on the number of mutations that are found within a type of tumour called a melanoma. A melanoma is a type of skin tumour. They arise from cells called melanocytes, which are found in the skin. Melanocytes are the cells which produce melanin, and, and melanin is associated with tanning. Uh, so a melanoma arises from those cells. If you're an individual who has uh, no mutations in the gene MC1R, then you're someone who will tan. But people who have one of these MC1R mutations will freckle, and they produce a slightly different form of melanin. How do you know if you have this gene? I'm a redhead, so I'm assuming that I have the gene, but neither of my parents are redheads. Right. Uh, so if you have two copies, you're, you've got a, a complexion like yours, so red hair, um, probably pale skin and freckles. Uh, if you carry one copy, uh, these people generally have pale skin uh, and often freckles, but they need not necessarily be redheads. So, I mean, it's generally the pale skin and freckles will tell you that you carry one of these, um, these what's known as an R allele, which is a mutation in the MC1R gene. And are both of these groups in general more at risk of getting skin cancer? 
if you're a redhead, uh, you're about four times more likely uh, than, than the general population of developing melanoma. Um, if you're one of these people who carries one of these uh, variant forms of MC1R, then you're about twice as likely. Uh, so this is sort of further biological proof about exactly why, that it is really the mutation number that is influenced by having uh, one or two of these R allele MC1R variants. So we looked in tumours that were, were established. So these are tumours that were removed, so when they were quite large. Um, and what, what we found was that the number of mutations that you would find in an individual who carried one of these R alleles equated to around the number of mutations that an uh, individual without one of these alleles would get in 21 years. And how did you study this? How did you study the increased mutations? So this was a, a, a big international collaboration and uh, fortunately genome sequences had been generated for over 400 melanomas and these melanomas came from people from all over the world and so we downloaded that data and, and reanalyzed it. What's actually going on then at a cellular level with this gene when you have the mutation in the gene? Do you know why it's giving rise to more mutations in the tumour than when you don't have the gene? So it's it's around uh, the ability of individuals who carry these variants uh, to produce that mature form of melanin. Uh, so when you have, uh, so the mature form is the is the, the darker coloured melanin. Um, so the, the melanin, when you carry one of these variant forms of MC1R, is not fully processed through to that darker form. And so you get a type of melanin that is, is red in colour. Um, and and uh, the, the, this particular type of melanin is less able to protect the cells of the skin from um, the effects of UV radiation. I guess in the UK, where we don't have very much sunshine, unfortunately, actually 10 million people are deficient in vitamin D, which we get from the sun. But then at the same time, we don't want to be overexposing ourselves to the sun. So what would be the kind of best balance? We want to get some vitamin D. So you need about 15 minutes a day to get enough vitamin D. And the real risk with regards to melanoma development is, is not the, the, the casual sun exposure that you get, but it's actually getting burnt. In the last few decades, our behaviours have changed quite significantly. For example, we, we often, people in the UK in particular, go off to very sunny locations like Spain and they get very short, sharp doses of, of ultraviolet light and they, they get burnt. And, and that kind of exposure pattern is particularly associated with an increased risk of melanoma. So certainly enjoy being outside, but when you are outside, avoid being burnt. So wear a long sleeve shirt, wear sunscreen and a hat. That's, that's the message. That was Dr David Adams from the Sanger Institute speaking about the work published this week in Nature Communications. To be able to grow, they need to be able to communicate with each other. And so the growth factors are really important because that's how the cells communicate to each other. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we're sifting the signal from the noise. How do molecular signals coordinate cells to build tissues, organs and babies? Plus, big data for big genetics and our gene of the month is going round in circles. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Kat Arney, and with Georgia Mills. Later on, we'll be taking a walk with man's best friend, finding out about how the domestication of wolves changed the course of human history. But before that, it's time for our regular myth conception. And this week, Kat, I hear you've been looking into a myth that seems to crop up on a very regular basis. 
Well, if you're anything like me, if you're female and have ever lived communally, such as in college halls or a shared house, you'll probably be aware of the idea that women living together quickly end up in sync. And I don't mean wanting a shower at the same time. I'm talking about periods, menstruation, and the idea that girls who live together will uh, go with the flow together too. It's actually a very old idea linked to another myth that women's periods are controlled by the moon because the human menstrual cycle is around 28 to 30 days, roughly the same duration as the lunar cycle. Also, some animals do come into their breeding season together at certain times of the year, with the most extreme examples being mass spawnings of sea-dwelling species like corals. So why not humans? Well, back in the early 70s, this idea was put to the test by a researcher called Martha McClintock. She studied 135 17- to 22-year-old female students living in dorms at Wellesley College. That's a private women-only college near Boston in Massachusetts. Following them through the academic year, she discovered that their cycles did seem to sync up over time, eventually publishing her results in the prestigious journal Nature. This sparked a lot of interest in finding out why, the main suspects being hormones or pheromones produced by women at various points in their menstrual cycle and sensed by their roommates. A study in 1998, also by McClintock and also published in Nature, suggested that sniffing other women's whiffy armpits could shift cycles a few days one way or the other, suggesting a mechanism by which ladies could be linking up. But this was strongly criticised for ignoring the rather crucial point that other studies, conducted using more robust methods than McClintock's, had failed to find any evidence for menstruating in sync at all, throwing the whole idea into doubt. McClintock studies in non-human female animals, including rats, hamsters and monkeys, which had shown that these creatures also get in sync, were disproved by more careful research. So what might be going on? Well, I don't know if you've ever done that thing where you sit in traffic with your indicator ticking, tick, 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 and you watch the indicator light of the car in front. You'll see that after a while, they actually seem to become synchronised. Then they just gradually drift out again. Now, what you're seeing obviously isn't hormonal communication between your car and that car, but a mathematical phenomenon. Things with almost similar length cycles appearing to align every so often. And when it comes to a bunch of women living together with similar but not identical menstrual cycles, things don't always run like clockwork, especially because the length of a woman's cycle and her period can shift by a day or more, or be even more unpredictable, and be affected by hormones, stress, diet and other things. So there will be random times when every woman's period collides, just due to chance, but plenty of others when their cycles drift apart again. So it's time to put this one down as a myth. Period. Thank you, Kat. And there will be another misconception along next week. So if you have any urban rumours you'd like to get debunked, do get in touch. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or find us on Facebook. Now, you've probably heard of something that has been rolled out this week called Pokemon Go. I certainly had to sit this morning watching my friends tediously trying to swipe imaginary creatures around the living room rather than actually talking to me. It's a mobile phone game which has people catching these little fictional characters called Pokemon in their local area. And it uses something called augmented reality. 
Augmented reality and its cousin virtual reality are coming our way, with companies racing to have their tech ready and on the shelves as soon as possible. But how does it work and what does this mean for gaming? Naked Scientist Techspert Peter Cowley is here to take me through this new frontier of gaming. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks, then, Georgia. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, so the two parts of those, two, two abbreviations, VR and AR. VR is virtual reality and AR is augmented reality. First of all, virtual reality is, is where you're effectively completely immersed in an environment, which could be real, could be created by computers, which gives you sight, touch, hearing, and even smell. Augmented reality, which is the Pokemon connection, is in fact a computer simulation on top of real life. So in the case of Pokemon, you are wandering down the streets, you can see an image of what's in front of you, but a Pokemon character, whatever they're called, because I don't <laughs> play the game, uh, will appear in front of you, and you're trying to find those. Um, that has massive adoption just recently. I believe about 20 million people have played it already. It was only released two weeks ago. Phenomenal. That. Yes, the servers have completely down. I know this because I was trying to find Pokemon in the studio earlier. <laughs> And, there are, and then it broke. Um, so how is this change in gaming? Yes. First of all, the reason it's suddenly become adopted so, so much is because of mobile phone technology, which allows great video, accelerometer, low cost and everything. Gaming, now, yes, I had a look at that and I'm a bit surprised, but on uh, a big survey of nearly 20,000 gamers, only 15% said they'd buy something that was virtual reality. And that might be to do with cost. That unlike the ones we're just about to look at, which are £10 each, the, the high-end ones, it can be many hundreds of pounds, or even low thousands. But I well imagine when these prices come down that in a short time, a year or two, many gamers will be using virtual reality. So how does it work? We've got, um, like you said, we've got a couple of examples here with us in the studio. Which we're going to switch on in a moment. So basically, virtual reality works much better clearly when there's you've got binocular vision, which means a screen, and we're both using mobile phones, is split in two. So each eye sees a different image. That image then, that method of doing it then allows you to create depth so you can actually see around. Then the accelerometer and the GPS inside the phone and, and the compass allow you to move your head around so you can look up, down, and it will give you a different image based on that. So rebuild the screen based on that. I see. So I've, I've um, slipped in my, uh, my phone into this cardboard contraption. It's very simple. It's just folded cardboard with two little glass goggles and um, you stick it on your face and it it, it does I've, I've gone on a tightrope simulator I don't know why I did that because I, I despise heights but um, when you move your head around it does really look like you're you're there you're, I'm looking around and I, I think it's the Grand Canyon I'm tightroping across at the moment yeah and I'm in a different one and excuse me if I move away from the microphone but I'm looking around I've just come out of a, a cage in a sh- load of sharks and the sharks are swinging around me you went into the microphone there sort of looking up and down I can see divers below me and above me and I can sh- see sharks that are apparently going to attack me I think I'll just remove this now <laughs> so apart from the perils of um, whacking into microphones Phones and I suppose we both look quite stupid as well, holding these big cardboard boxes to our heads. But what kind of things do they need to work on for this to yeah. for this to work? Yes, I mean the, the two big ones are the fact that computing power isn't probably quite fast enough. So what's called rendering, which is rebuilding the image can be a bit slow and when we tried it earlier with different uh, generations of a particular phone it, we found quite a big difference between those so but it's getting there the technology is getting there the other thing is a sort of nausea or balance issues so when you're in got this on you have got no means of connecting yourself with the real environment so you're relying fully you, your eyes are nothing and particularly if you've got some sort of sensing device on some gloves or something you're completely immersed in that so some uh, in, the, in the way that some people are more affected by being on a boat and some people are more 
more affected by reading in car. There will be some people who suffer more from it than others. There are also a few other things as well. There's the um, obviously the input devices, which I think we're going to be talking about. Uh, uh, Gray is going to be talking about later how, how to do that, how to actually interact. And secondly, possible addiction. You know, you could get to the point where you actually quite enjoyed being in your virtual environment <laughs> compared with normality. And what about outside of the world of gaming? What what kind of use can these have? Actually, I've just remembered I used one AR effectively to read a menu recently. So this is where you're pointing at a menu and it's re- it's translating the food in real time in front of you so you can move down. So if you're in Russia or something, it would be very easy if you don't speak Russian. But there's lots of sensible applications and lots of military, some military, medicine, tourism, archaeology. Can you imagine the architecture wandering through a building that you're designing? You know, to be able to see it before it's actually been built. It'd save money, I suppose, if uh, if you didn't like the design. Exactly, change the design. Quickly. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. That was uh, Naked Scientist expert Peter Cowley. Thank you. Well, with immersive media like this, a technology is attempting to move virtual reality towards something much more close to, well, reality, where you can not only look around your environment, but feel around your environment too. A bit like the holodeck in Star Trek. But how far are we from making this kind of virtual reality touchy-feely? This is what's known among scientists as haptics, and Greer Jackson made it her mission to find out at the Eurohaptics conference, which took place this week. First up, though, to recreate touch, you need to know what it is and how it works. And that's where Imperial College's Paul Rinney helped Greer out. From my medical background, touch is incredibly important. So simple, you know, make a cup of tea. You know, if you're not able to sense the heat of the cup, if you're not able to sense the pressure of how you hold the cup, you know, you can't perform these daily tasks. So I suppose an example is I have a handbag full of rubbish and I'm trying to find my keys and I'm rummaging around in that bag. So what is it about feeling those keys that makes me able to be identified that they are in fact keys? Our sort of interface with the world is is our skin. And within our skin, we have a number of different sensors and receptors. Uh, So these can range from pressure uh, receptors to thermal, so cool or hot, uh, stretch receptors, for example. And it's actually these receptors that when we start touching objects and we start interacting with them, uh, they send signals up through our nerves, through our spine, to our brain to an area called the somatosensory cortex and it's up in that area of the brain that all this, is, all this information is processed and we're able to suddenly distinguish between different, for example, temperatures of objects, different edges of objects, how hard an object is, how soft it is uh, and that's where, we, yes, we're able to, to start distinguishing these things. So my snotty tissues from my keys. So your snotty tissues from your keys, yes. <laughs> So we've sort of managed to hack, if you like, or mimic vision and sound. So why is it so hard to then mimic touch? I mean, it is an incredibly complicated process. It all stems down to the neuroscience of it. Um, you know, we need to try and work out the processes of how our these receptors work, how the nerves work, and ultimately, when we go up into the brain, really the processes of you know what is firing, what signals are being sent to different parts of the brain. There's a reason why neuroscience is called the last frontier. There's more we don't know about the brain than we currently do know. But this hasn't hampered haptics. In fact, the conference was littered with demos, so University of Washington's Blake Hannaford and I, we sat down to try out the latest electronic braille with Michigan's Alex Rusimano. A large reason for this is that uh, blind people, it's very difficult for them to access digital content. Uh, And so the way they read is via Braille, um, and the way they can interact with any kind of graphics has to be via touch. And so what we're trying to do is create a large display 
where that display kind of has pixels, but those pixels are features that raise up and down out of a surface that you can feel. Alex had a small square prototype, eight pins across by seven. And these pins, they pop up and down, kind of like whack-a-mole. So in theory, this could kind of be like the future of Kindle, but for the blind. To demonstrate its versatility, though, Alex didn't show Blake and I a series of braille letters, but actually a game of snake. Um, If you remember, I'm not sure, the original Nokia cell phones, they used to have that snake game. Except with Alex's game, instead of seeing the snake eat the apple, you feel it. And this is hard, actually really hard, and I was completely useless. Blake fared a little bit better, though. My eyes are closed. Yep, and so I'll restart it. Okay, yes, let's start over. I'm kind of getting it now. Now that you're playing it as a blind person, would I can't actually see if you're winning or losing. So right. you know, you I could just either. be you could I, just I'm be sort of giving random inputs to the game. <laughs> oh, there you go. So this is one way that haptics could work in that you are physically moving things underneath your fingertips. But how else might you recreate a sensation? Well, there's tactile, which is like feeling textures and small shapes and edges as they deform the skin of your fingers, and we're very sensitive. Somebody just uh, said today that there's 2,000 tactile sensors in each fingertip that we have, and that's a lot. And another is temperature displays. Suppose you had three objects that are the same shape and they weigh the same, but they're made of different materials. You can still tell... Because uh, a metal object will feel colder than a wood object, even if they're at the same temperature. The metal absorbs heat faster out of your fingers. So people are studying that phenomenon to see if that can give more realism to a, a touch sensation. That's pretty cool, hey? Yes, that's why we're all here. We all think it's cool, and that's why we're crazy enough to work on this for 25 years. What do you think is going to be the most exciting developments that you think are going to happen in the next few years? Well, you know, we're at a very exciting period right now for virtual reality. There's this whole second wave of startups, the Oculus Rift, the Vive, the, the Samsung, all these companies, and... When you interact with a nice, visual, immersive virtual reality, you really become aware that you lack the haptics. You see cool objects out there, you reach out, and your hand goes right through it. And that's not reality. And so I I see a lot of uh, rapid progress sooner. Um, The full holodeck that would fool you into believing that it's real, uh, that will be farther. Imperial College's Paul Rinney, Washington's Blake Hannaford and Michigan's Alex Rusimano, all at the Eurohaptics Conference this month. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Kat Arney. Now it's time to move into our main topic for this week, and that is dogs. I love dogs. I'm so excited about this show. From tiny chihuahuas to enormous Great Danes, our four-legged friends are much beloved by people all over the world. In fact, our best guess is that there are over 500 million dogs on the planet. Kat and I are both self-confessed dog enthusiasts, but behind their fluffy faces, there is more than meets the eye to these pets. The domestication of the wolf led to some pretty unique characteristics cropping up in the species and has arguably changed the course of human history. Well, for the next 30 minutes, we'll be exploring how wolves turned into dogs, why smart dogs might hold the key to studying Alzheimer's, plus 
why one scientist decided to put bulldogs on treadmills. So let's start at the beginning. How did wolves turn into dogs? Well, humans and wolves have been interacting together for as long as both species have been on the planet, but the first evidence of dog-like characteristics appearing is about 15,000 years ago. But what caused this? Well, just last month, a study uncovered a revelation about this domestication. It happened more than once. I spoke to Gregor Larson from Oxford University to find out what he'd dug up. The first big thing that we've just discovered is by sequencing a genome of a 4,800-year-old dog from Ireland. From that, we were then able to compare that very conclusively to all, all the modern genomes that have been sequenced. And that then, through the analysis, through phylogenetic trees and molecular clocks, and looking at the pattern of different genetic signatures in time and space made us think that perhaps dogs were domesticated not once, as been previously suspected, certainly by a lot of geneticists, but twice. What are the implications of this domestication happening twice? Well, if it's happened twice, then that makes it go from being something like an accident. I mean, some, anything can happen once. But as soon as it's twice on several thousand miles, several thousand kilometers apart from each other, um, it seems like maybe there, it sort of lends an inevitability to this. It makes it seem like there was a set of environmental circumstances that were, was the same over a very wide range, wherein people and wolves started interacting in a way that they hadn't done for the last 150,000 years prior to that. And that interaction and that sort of romantic dance, as it were, between the wolf populations and the human populations getting used to one another and kind of partnering up in a way that they hadn't done before that led to what we now know as domestic dogs. Do we know about how this came about? We don't really. What we can guess from looking at comparisons and using analogues from the rest of the natural world. So one hypothesis that we've been talking about recently is this idea that there were potentially different wolf ecomorphs. And by that, I mean different populations of wolves that were specializing based upon the kind of prey that they were going after. In the same way that there are killer whales off the northwest coast of North America, some pods go after salmon, some pods go after seals, and they don't really like each other, they don't really talk to each other, and when calves are born, they're raised in either seal eating or salmon eating, and they kind of know that the other killer whales are out there, but they don't really talk to them that much. And we know that wolves are very capable of this. There are very well-known wolves that are on the TV almost every week that hunt caribou, but there's other wolf populations that don't go anywhere near the caribou and subsist off completely different resources in forested environments. So what we suspect might be happening is that about 15,000, maybe a few thousand years before that, um, maybe two independent wolf populations started following people rather than following anything else or rather than trying to get resources in any other means and getting used to that human niche. And in doing so, would start to protect that human niche and that would initiate a reduction in the gene flow between that wolf population and wolf populations that were doing other things. And that may have activated this process of domestication very early on, which wouldn't require any initiation from people who were acting intentionally in a goal-directed fashion to try and generate a chihuahua puppy from a wild wolf, which of course they couldn't have known about because there were no domestic animals. So while one group of wolves made its living from following humans, others did not. And the two groups wouldn't have interbred, so started to change. The wolves who hung around humans need different characteristics to do well, having low fear and low aggression. And over time, this relationship became more and more entrenched, and people started selecting which dogs would live and which would die. And selecting for tameness also changed the wolves in other ways. 
There was an experiment in the 50s in Siberia where they just were selecting for foxes solely on the basis of how a sort of a lack of fear and a lack of aggression that they demonstrated when someone put a hand into a cage. And they only selected those animals that had the least amount of fear or the most curious and the most kind of friendly. And within a couple dozen generations, those foxes started looking like a lot of the characteristics that domestic dogs have. They started getting smaller overall. They had differences in their in their shapes and their coat colors and their snouts, and they started barking. So it was a very clear demonstration that simply by selecting for a tame behavior, you can get all of these changes that we recognize as what we call the domestication syndrome. And so wolves started to become dogs. But why did humans tolerate these animals being around in the first place? You are much better able to exact resources and get calories out of an environment when you've got a wolf partner. And there are many instances where from Japan to southern Scandinavia to even the southeast corner of the U.S. in the Mesolithic, prior to the advent of agriculture, or at least prior to agriculture arriving in those areas, where people are burying their dogs with more grave goods than they're burying a lot of people. I mean, these <laughs> dogs are being, seriously, these dogs are being revered as very hugely important members of society, as equals or in some cases even better than some other people. So... You know, there was a clear partnership there, and you would only do that if those dogs were very important to your well-being in those environments. And, you know, there's lots of speculation about how they were used in hunting, and clearly they have uh, much better olfactory capabilities than we do. And if you're able to cut an animal with a microblade on a long stick and then the animal runs, it's hard for us to find it if it, it runs around in a dense forest. But dogs have an amazing sense of smell and would be able to track them down, and that way that would lead the humans to them, and boom, you've got dinner. Man's best friend indeed. And dogs were the very first domestication in human history. It was the start of a trend which led to life as we know it. So until you have domestication, you certainly don't have the capability of humans uh, expanding their population sizes to afford the kinds of technological advances that we've seen over the last 10,000 years. So dogs are to thank for everything. Who knew? That was Gregor Larson from Oxford University there, and that study was published in Science. As we've heard, this domestication has led to a unique bond between humans and dogs. And in fact, many dog owners will say they know what mood their dog is in, or that their dog instinctively knows when they're feeling sad and to cheer them up. Well, this may sound like anthropomorphising nonsense. Maybe some of it is, but dogs have actually been shown to be able to tell facial expressions of humans apart. And we're joined by Natalia Albuquerque from the University of Lincoln, who's been studying this. Hi, Natalia. Oh, hello. So why did you want to find out about this? Why do you want to know whether dogs can, can read our emotions? Because I think so. we all agree that dog-human relationship is very, very special and is particularly interesting, also from an, a scientific point of view. And we already knew that dogs were able to discriminate facial expressions, for example. They would they know the difference between a smiley face and a blank face, and they would behave differently towards uh, different facial expressions or uh, emotional expressions. But at the same time, we didn't know, we had no evidence of whether dogs could actually obtain emotional information from those faces. That means, for example, one thing is uh, knowing that uh, visually a spoon is different from a fork, but knowing that what is, what is a fork and what is a spoon. So we wanted to see if dogs could have any kind of understanding of what is a facial expression and what is uh, our voice, what is our vocalizations. How do you go about testing this? How do, do you just go, how do I look, dog? Do I look happy? 
<laughs> so what we did, um, everything was very spontaneous. So there was no training or no familiarization phase involved. The dogs were sitting in front of two screens and on each screen there was a facial expression being presented from the same individual. So on one screen there would be a happy face and on the other screen would be an angry face. And at the same time it would play a sound that could be either a neutral sound as a control or a vocalization, so of the voice. So a human being, for example, saying something in a happy, a happy manner Oh, in good a, dog, good dog. Yes. <laughs> oh, bad dog, naughty yes. dog. Okay. <laughs> so we controlled for the content and we, we actually wanted to see if they could obtain this information from uh, the emotional perspective. So what do you find? How are dogs interpreting this stuff? Okay, so in that case, uh, we would expect if, if someone, if an individual can recognise what is a facial expression, whether it's positive or negative, at least the, the main categories, positive versus negative, happy versus angry, for example. Um, in that scenario, in that setup, we would expect the individual to look longer towards the happy facial expression upon listening to the happy voice and more longer towards the angry facial expression when listening to the angry voice. So they're kind of matching up what they're seeing with what they're hearing. Yes, perfect. Is that in that case, for example, if if we can't see anything, but if we listen to someone laughing, for example, we would expect to see someone smiling because that's what comes, you know, voice comes uh, with with uh, image. So you're finding that dogs can do this. They can kind of go, oh, that seems happy, that seems angry. Why can they do this? What's the point of dogs being able to do this? Yes, that's a very interesting question. And I think the, the first point is from uh, an evolutionary point of view, from an evolutionary uh, perspective, it's very important to be able to read not only facial expressions, but the emotional expressions. So, for example, if you're part of a social group, especially in a complex social system, so it's very interesting, it's very uh, adaptive and biologically advantageous if you can read uh, others, you know, the, the, the members of your group emotions. In that case, for example, to know where, who should I approach, who should I avoid, is that member of my group angry, is that happy, and that would be very interesting. And dogs are unnaturally social. Um, so we believe that this was um, a cognitive ability they already had to interact with members of the same species, with other dogs, in that case with wolves and their ancestors. And probably during the domestication, this shared evolutionary period with human beings, they may have developed this, uh, refined this. So this, the ability to read emotions from other individuals may have been selected and this may be the key for dog-human interactions. So you said there that maybe this has come because dogs could recognise the emotions of other dogs or, or wolves as they were. So dogs have emotions then? Yes, that's an, another... They have, like, good day, question. bad day, miserable day. Yes. <laughs> so we have, in, in the emotion research area, we have two groups of emotions. So we have the basic emotions, so sadness, anger, happiness, and we have the more complex and the secondary emotions, such as jealousy, uh, guilt. And as far as we know, dogs have all the basic emotions. So they can, they have like happy mood or playful or aggressive, but we have already some evidence that they may have some kind of more complex emotions as well. I, lots of dog owners will say they know their dog has done something naughty because they just look at it and that thing looks guilty <laughs> do dogs really feel guilt or are we just projecting yeah so there's there's only uh, a few studies been done in that looking into that and 
as far as we know from those studies, that usually the guilt look is more in an anticipation of a punishment. So when we recognize that they did something wrong, they would look like, oh no, I think I'm going to be punished. And we're not sure whether they, they actually feel guilt. That guilty look may be more of a, a learned response towards, oh no, my owner said, what did you do? And then the, the dogs is just like, oh no, I'm going to be punished. In the case of our first spaniel, chewed up my dad's credit cards. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. That's Natalia Albuquerque from Lincoln University. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Georgia Mills, and with Kat Arney. Still to come, how smart is your dog? And could clever canines help us to understand Alzheimer's disease? But first, our relationship with dogs has clearly impacted both of our species heavily. But the domestication at some point went far beyond just selecting tame and friendly behaviours or effective workers. During the Victorian times, humans started selecting for much more extreme looks and sizes and came up with the terms pedigree and purebred, which has resulted in the huge number of shapes and sizes we see today. But this has caused problems. Because of this artificial selection, this has resulted in some breeds having extreme features like very, very short legs or very long bodies, and this can affect their quality of life. And what's more, when you breed from a relatively narrow gene pool, genetic defects or inherited diseases become common and widespread. And while people will fork out a fortune for a pedigree dog, each breed does have its own set of problems that they're likely to suffer from, such as tumours, arthritis or breathing problems. For example, here is a clip of a bulldog trying to breathe. Doesn't sound quite right, does it? And I wanted to know a bit more about these diseases, so I went to meet Jane Ladlow, who's investigating this at the University of Cambridge. The disease that we are interested in is brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome, That seems to be an issue in the smaller dogs that have the very, very short faces. So we look at the three extreme brachycephalic dogs and we think of these as the pug, the bulldog and the French bulldog. And they've been bred to look very appealing to people and the way they do this is they make the nose shorter, larger eyes and a little bit more like a human baby face. They have become exceptionally popular in the last few years. So it used to be that you would expect to see four or 5,000 particularly French bulldogs around, and now you will see 10 times that amount. So a very, very popular breed. And that means that you're starting off with quite a small number of breeding stock and that you're using them more. And we're also getting more dogs in from different countries and we're not sure about their health. So it's a, it's a population explosion that is causing quite a lot of the problems we're seeing. And what are these problems causing for the dogs? We look particularly at the breathing. And what's happened in some of these dogs is as their skull has reduced in its length, the soft tissues within the skull have not reduced in the same way. And this means they have areas of obstruction in their upper airway. And you can hear this. So many people think it's normal to hear a a bulldog snorting as it walks past you. But that indicates there are levels of obstruction in that airway. So that's horrible. So all this soft tissue is like crammed into this much smaller space, meaning that the air just finds it really hard to get through. Exactly. That's exactly it. This is something you study here. How are you looking into this? 
We started uh, quite a few years ago now. So the problem with this disease is that it's a very difficult disease to measure. Okay, So doing functional breathing tests on dogs is more complicated than humans because they won't cooperate in the same way. So with humans, you can say breathe into this tube and you can get spirometry readings. But with dogs, if you handle them or if you put a face mask on them, you can alter their breathing. So unless you can actually measure what a normal dog is like and what an affected dog is like, then you can't really determine how many dogs are affected and how badly they're affected. And also, for me, I had no real idea of how well these dogs were responding to treatment. Now, we used to look at owner questionnaires, and owner questionnaires are useful, but many owners don't recognise the disease symptoms in their dogs. So there have been some work done that has shown that 60% of owners do not really recognise the signs of obstructive airway disease. We tried lots of different techniques. So we tried a treadmill, and that wasn't very good because the bulldogs went off the end. <laughs> and we tried putting tapes around them to measure how their respiratory functions alter in the thoracic wall and their abdomen. But many of our dogs are very barrel-chested, and the tapes move. So after trying lots of different ways of trying to measure respiratory function in these dogs, we came up with a new technique which we call plasmography, whole-body plasmography. Jane showed me the kit they use for this technique. There's a clear plastic box with a comfy doggy bag inside. The dog settles down in the box and the pressure changes inside are measured and recorded on a laptop. This then shows how much air the dog can get in and out of their lungs and how efficiently. I wanted to see the box in action, so we recruited willing bulldog Ronnie. <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> no, don't eat the microphone. <laughs> Oh, you are friendly and a bit smelly. <laughs> we did have one dog that we used to have a temperature probe in the chamber and one dog ate it. So now all our, all our probes now are outside the chamber. <laughs> Once Ronnie had settled down in the box, we could watch his breathing traces in real time. This technique has allowed Jane and her team to quantifiably estimate how bad an individual case may be. And after testing over 800 dogs... It looks like up to 60% of pugs and 50% of bulldogs have this disease, which isn't good. Unfortunately, we're not sure what proportion of animals die from brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome because they're often just recorded as acute deaths. Um, and it's often also reported as heat stroke because another thing these animals can't do is if you're not panting or breathing effectively, then you're not cooling yourself down properly. So it's often put down as, as acute death or heat stroke, but certainly proportion of them will be exacerbated by their respiratory obstruction. Ah, because yes, dogs can't sweat, can they? They exactly. lose it all through panting. Yeah. yeah, so panting is vital. And this is why you'll hear a lot of... of information about not taking out brachycephalics in the heat of the day which is sensible but it's a little bit of a shame that we have to look after them so carefully because they have breathing issues what else can we do about this well if you have an affected dog then we can manage um, the disease in a, a number of different ways so we can be careful about when we exercise we can use coats that keep the animals cool and then for dogs that require more help then we have surgical procedures the other thing that we are looking at in the longer term, we have um, Dr David Sargon working on the genetics of this disease. And we are hopeful that in the future, the geneticists may be able to offer some guidance to the breeders. So I don't think it will be simple yes or no affected test, but it might be an estimated breeding value where you could look at a couple of dogs and you could say, OK, well, if you breed this particular dog with this particular dog, then your odds of having um, affected progeny are, are so much. And that will at least give the breeders a lot more of an idea of you know, how to improve the health of the breed. So I think longer term we do need to look at 
trying to support the breeds and improving the health. The other discussion is whether we bring some different blood into some of these breeds, which is a very difficult question because for a number of, of the pug breeders, it's pugs we're particularly thinking of, it's a very emotive um, area that you shouldn't really change a breed, but it may be that's a faster way to improve the breathing. Um, but these are questions that the Kennel Club will have to think about. Should people who care about animal welfare buy pugs and bulldogs if, if this is such a big problem? I think you have to be exceptionally careful where you get a brachycephalic dog from. So if I was going to buy a brachycephalic dog, I would go and I would look at the mother, I would ask to look at the father and have some idea of their breathing. I wouldn't just want photos, I would actually want to go and visit the parents. I'd want to see some other French bulldogs or bulldogs or pugs that have been produced by those breeders. And I'd like to see the dogs exercising and having a normal life. There are good dogs out there. However, you know, unless you're going to do your homework very carefully, you do have a risk of having a dog that has this this horrible problem. That was Jane Ladlow at the Cambridge Vet School there with the friendly and smelly bulldog, Ronnie. Well, we also have a dog here. Now, whether your dog is a pedigree or a mongrel, the chances are maybe not that bright. Certainly if you're a cat person, that's what you might think. Dogs don't always have the best reputation for intelligence. They sniff things and eat things they definitely shouldn't. They bark at nothing. They get stuck under cupboards. But is this a fair characterisation? Dogs do a huge range of things that many animals struggle with. We've heard that they can recognise human emotions. Some of them can remember lots of human words and be trained to do all sorts of things. Think about guide dogs and things like that. So how smart really is your dog? Well, to find out, we're joined by Rosalind Arden. She's from the London School of Economics and she's been investigating ways to test dog intelligence and how this might provide insights into human diseases. And we also need to introduce our second guest, the very well-behaved Bounder and her owner, Carol. Hello, Carol. Hello, Hello. Bounder. You've been so good. You're a good dog. Yeah. Um, so is, is Bounder an intelligent dog, do you think? Well, out of our three dogs that we've had, she's the most intelligent, definitely. She's been easier to train than our last two, but she's very driven by food. So if there's food involved, she will probably have a go at doing something, but otherwise perhaps not. She's been so good just sitting here very quietly. Can we, can we do a few tricks? Uh, let, let's okay. do just a couple of tricks. Uh, high five. Oh, that's so cute. She's just put both paws up on your hand. Lie down. Oh, roll thump. over. Here we go. Oh, this is great right. radio, great radio. Uh, can we do a noisy one? And the last one, speak. <laughs> oh, a bit less. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. So, so Rosalind, hello. Would you say that Bound is an intelligent dog? How do you test intelligence in well, a dog? I'm actually feeling slightly shocked. I think Bound is more intelligent than some of my children. <laughs> Rather shocking. How would you test that then? How do you test how smart a dog is? So the key thing is we wanted to find out if dogs vary from one another in intelligence. And so we came up with a few different tests that we could administer to a group of dogs. And we used something called a detour test. Can a dog find some food that it can see that's hidden behind a barrier? Can a dog discriminate between two different quantities? And we assume that when it comes to food and dogs, more equals better. And then can a dog follow a human making a pointing gesture and go to a bowl which has got a treat in it where the human's pointing at that bowl? Right, so we have two bowls here and we have a dog. So let's do this test. Right, so we've broken the biscuits. We've got a biscuit in each of these two small bowls. They're going on the floor. Taking back a bit. Okay, no, right. Taking back. 
Okay, we're trying to make sure that she goes to one of these bowls. Oh, Bounder. That's Bounder. astounding. Very good dog. So Fantastic Bounder has point. gone to the bowl that you were pointing at, even though there was a biscuit in the other bowl. What does it, that show? Exactly. So in front of me on the floor, there were two bowls, each with a treat in, the same size treat. And I pointed at one of the bowls only, and Bounder looked at me, and he recognised she recognised, sorry Vanda, that I wanted her to go to the bowl that I was pointing at and she just immediately went there. So we, no one thing will tell you whether a dog is intelligent or less bright, but if you do lots of different tests, you can sort of get a general sense of whether or not the dog is, as Carol said, trainable. And what can this actually tell us, studying dogs' intelligence, working out what they know, how they think about the world? I mean, obviously, dogs are cool and awesome, but um, what what use is is this kind of research? Absolutely, very good question. So it's not just having fun with dogs and treats, although that's a marvellous way to spend your life. We were interested partly because dogs, unlike many other mammals, they get dementia like we do, and their brain changes are very much like our brain changes when our brains get dementia as we age and develop that disease. And so we wanted to find out if there's a way of measuring changes in dogs' cognition, if we could measure, say, what a dog's like when it's young and healthy, it would be a terrific way to be able to measure that change as it goes through life and then see if there's some deficit as the dog gets older. And maybe dogs can help us understand dementia. And that's really what we're driving at in the future. So from your experiments, what's dog intelligence like? I mean, there's all these discussions about what human intelligence and cognition is like. What do we know about how dogs think? That's a good question. So what we were looking at is, is a dog that catches on quickly at one task likely to catch on quickly at a completely different task? So we don't compare dogs with people or dogs with chimpanzees or other kinds of primates. We say... Given that you're a dog, the kinds of things that you can do, say, find your way around a barrier, navigate through space, discriminate between quantities, is your likelihood of being good at one of those things going to predict, to some extent, your likelihood at being good at another of them? So what we're really getting at here is the fact that with people, if you ask any teacher, they'll agree with this, that a big classroom full of children... There will be some kids who just catch on to everything a little bit more quickly than others. And we wanted to know, is that also true in dogs? Can we sort of give them a rank order in how quickly they apprehend something? And so are there doggy Einsteins out there? They're like, genius dog, got it. There really likely are. It seems most likely, from what we know currently, that dogs' intelligence is distributed somewhat like ours, that most of us are kind of in the middle and some of us are really, really smart. That's you, Grounder. (laughs) (laughs) Some Uh, of us are a bit less than average. And if you had just... If you had just one tip for people, dog owners, to train their dog, to to make it sort of behave a bit better or or do tricks or do what they want it to do, is there sort of one top tip that you've got? Be consistent. It's really easy to just give in and do whatever, but be consistent. And when the dog does the thing that you want it to do, if it's come, for example, the recall, never tell a dog off when it comes to you. And in terms of, of dogs, you know, Do we understand from their brains, very briefly, why they are so smart? We think it's probably because they have 
co-evolved with us. They've been our partners for maybe 30,000 years, and so they've learned to read our signals, to read our emotions, and to take account of our voice. And so we're very much partners with dogs. That is a wonderful thing. Uh, do you have a dog? Yes, I do. A border collie called Jenny, but she's living with a friend at the moment. Is she a smart dog? Of course she is. <laughs> <laughs> We've all got smart dogs. They're all joyous to us. And uh, a little hello to Ferdy, who's my mum's dog at home. Thank you very much. That's uh, Rosalind Arden, Carol, and a very well-behaved bound of the dog. Thanks to our other guests this week, Gregor Larson, Natalia Albuquerque, and Jane Ladlow. And now it's time for Question of the Week. And this week, Claire Armstrong has been gazing skyward to find the answer to Lute's question. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. How did the moon get its markings? To find out what's really going on up there, I spoke to planetary expert Professor David Rothery from the Open University. What's actually causing all of these craters? Is it, is it meteorites? It, it's meteorites. It's cosmic debris, chunks of rock, chunks of ice, sometimes bits of comet, that will hit the moon at 20, 30 or so kilometres per second. 30 kilometres a second. That's fast. And that's why you get craters which are about 30 times as big as the object that hits the surface. And if you think about the moon going round the Earth, keeping the same face to the Earth all the time, that means that the moon has a leading side and a trailing side. As you look at the moon in the sky, from the northern hemisphere at least, it's the left-hand side of the moon that's travelling forwards and the right-hand edge of the moon that's being dragged along behind it. So it's the forwards-travelling hemisphere of the moon which is facing into danger, so it's that that's travelling towards the debris and the, and the other side is travelling away from the debris, so it's the Moon's leading edge that has more impacts, about 1.4 times as many craters as the trailing hemisphere. Why is it that if the Earth's gravity is stronger than the Moon's gravity, why is it that these meteorites weren't coming to Earth? Why did they end up hitting the Moon instead? OK, well, the Earth's gravity is certainly strong enough to keep the Moon in orbit around the Earth, but something that's whizzing past the Earth at 40 kilometres per second is scarcely going to notice the Earth before it's gone past the Earth. If you miss the Earth, there's still a fair chance you'll hit the Moon. So the, moon, the Earth doesn't get in the way of much that's headed towards the Moon. A much bigger effect on the density of craters on the Moon is the fact that the Moon keeps the same side forward all the time as it orbits the Earth. When do you think was the last time that the Moon had to sustain one of these super-fast meteorites? Oh, the Moon is being hit by crater-forming impactors all the time. They can be recorded from Earth. If you look at the night side of the Moon with sensitive equipment, you can see the occasional flash as something hits the Moon's surface and causes a glow. So we know that at the present day we've got more impacts on the leading side than on the trailing side. We think the Moon has been having an asymmetric distribution of impact events for at least three and a half billion years. Well, there you have it. The Earth isn't quite as effective a shield against meteorites as you might have thought. There are some seriously speedy ones out there. Now, to whet your appetite for next time, we'll be tackling this question from Natasha. Hi, Naked Scientists. My question is, why does my stomach loudly grumble when I'm hungry? 
something to chew on for next week. And if you think you have the answer to Natasha's question, then send it in to chris at nakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists or get involved on our forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is all we have time for this week. Thanks to everyone who's been on the show and to Georgia for putting the programme together. Do join us next week when we'll be looking for the fuels that could power our future. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is sponsored by the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Katani and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.